Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on the panel, we have Alan Weimar. Hello. Adi Eingar. Hello. And me, I'm Sasha Wolf. No special guest this week, but we have an exciting topic. I've been I've been bugging Adi about four weeks. Like, Adi, come on, show I want to talk about this. I want to talk about it's, this. It's Gitmoji, right? Gitmoji. No, 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 no. Gitmoji is my pick for this week. <gasps> Spoiler! Uh, but yeah. <laughs> the topic for this week, more of a theoretical one, but with like practical appliances and how that applies to Elixir. And it's some types or tech unions or whatever other term you prefer. But basically, there's like sometimes there's product types. And we're going to talk about what exactly the difference between those two is and what that means for Elixir and how you usually what model those and why sometimes you might want to do different things. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood. I've been talking to a whole bunch of people that want to update their resume and find a better job. And I figure, well, why not just share my resume? So you, if you go to topendevs.com slash resume, enter your name and email address, then you'll get a copy of the resume that I use, that I've used through freelancing, through my, most of my career, as I've kind of refined it and tweaked it to get me the jobs that I want. Uh, like I said, topendevs.com slash resume will get you that. And uh, you can just kind of use the formatting. It comes in Word and Pages formats, and you can just fill it in from there. So, Adi, I know that you have been playing with Haskell already. So I feel you're the most qualified person here to give an introduction. <laughs> he's, he's shaking his head. <laughs> so, what, Adi, Adi, what are sometimes? Yeah, no. Sasha, go for it. You're the one who wrote a library. I I'm definitely, I could write it, but I don't think I can give a proper definition. So I <laughs> yeah, think okay, you're definitely okay. more qualified here. Fair enough. Sorry. Sorry if I put you on the spot there. I just didn't want to monologue too long, you know? So yeah, what are sometimes what, what are tech unions or, or whatever you might ask, want to call them? So basically, let's start with what's a product type, because it's kind of the opposite of some type. And a product type is something we're all very familiar with. Struct, for example, Elixir, it's a product type. Why is it called a product type, you might ask? Because the number of possible states a struct can be in is the product of the number of possible states of each individual property. And I'm just going to give you an example right away. So if you have a struct with two properties, two attributes, and they're meant to be a Boolean, right? A Boolean can have two possible states, true and false. Then the number of possible states of that struct is four. But if you had a third one, the number of possible states is eight. So it's two times two times two. And with a sum type, if you have three different, yes, three different cases, let's say that, it's the sum of a different case of the number of, uh, the number of, uh, good gosh, <laughs> I'm losing my train of thought yet. So with the sum type, if you have three different cases of a sum type, it's the sum of the different states of each individual case of a sum type, which then dictates how many possible states it can be in. Okay, this is like super confusing. I'm realizing that. But basically, if we come back to the example with a struct with three properties, you might be saying, okay, now I have a sum type with three different cases and each can take one uh, Boolean. So that basically each case can have two states. Then the number of possible states for that sum type can be six. So it's two plus two plus two. And in Elixir, we actually have one example of sum types, and that is the okay error tuple kit convention, let's say, let's call it that, right? You have an okay case and you have an error case. And that's just a convention thing where you say, okay, it can either be this tuple or it can be that tuple. You often see it also in type specs, but it's exactly that. It can be even okay with some value or it can be an error, some kind of error message. And But it can never be both. It can only be one or the other. If we, for example, had like, I don't know, like an struct which was returned and it said okay like it can either have a property that says okay and it can have a property that says error in the theory you could fill out both right it would be an invalid scenario but in theory you could do that which is why i don't like go because go does that go is nil and 
value for, for errors and for the actual values and it gives you both. And I hate that about Go. <laughs> so sue me. <laughs> so, um, Alan, given that I just talked about all of this, how much sense does it make as somebody who hasn't really doubled with type definitions and type modeling? I mean, the first time we talked about this before the show, was it three weeks ago? It made some sense, but maybe it's just been a long day. It's about 10 p.m. over here for me, and I haven't left the office yet. So it's just not hard to understand. Like, I, obviously, I know what a product is. I know what sums, and, and I understand how that makes sense. But at the same time, I don't understand exactly how this works. Like, for me, the union types make the most sense. It's like you have, you know, like the famous one is maybe, right? Maybe is either something or nothing. That that makes a lot of sense to me. Like, I think you and I both looked at Rust and the way Rust has like the result type, the, uh, what's the other one they have? Oh, they also have some, also like a maybe type too, I believe for like Results maps. they also have. Yeah, they have a lot of these things and that just like clicks, you know? So that yeah. stuff makes sense, but I'm aware that there's other types out there and I don't quite understand how they work and why one would be better than the other or when I would want to use one or the other. Just just to be clear, like maybe or result from Rust is a sum type. Those are sum types because they can... So a unit type thing. is a sum type. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just a different way okay. to phrase it. More, more of like on the academic type modeling thing. And yeah, like I said, in Elixir, you might do the same. Like for example, if result, right? Like as you just mentioned in, in Rust, you have result types where it says, okay, it's even... It was successful with some value or it failed with some error, but it can never be both, right? It can one or the other. And Elixir is the same with the OK error tuple convention. But that is an Elixir more of an emulation of a sum type. It's just a convention. Like no, nobody, except if you have dial as a setup, would stop you from returning a foobar tuple, right? Like there's nothing in the language that said, okay, this is this is not allowed, right? I mean, at the end of the day, Elixir is a dynamically typed language. So you never get quite the same guarantees as in a language like Rust or Dart for that matter, or whatever, or TypeScript, but still it's only using these conventional things for, for doing the same kind of approaches. And I'm not sure about you, but I've been to a point in my career, sometimes in Elixir code, especially with errors, where I end up, okay, the tuple is just not good enough here, right? Like I don't want to only have a tuple and maybe like then an error message, but I want to have more expressiveness. And what you sometimes do, I've, I've been doing that a few times, is you don't return just an error tuple with a string or whatever, but you return error tuple with like a struct inside of that, like with an error struct to give it a bit more meaning. But even then, sometimes you might have not two possible cases, might be three possible cases where you say, okay, like it can be okay or it can be like, I don't know, like continue or skip or it can be like an abort, right? And yeah, you can always go down with tuples, but at some point, if you end up in a situation where you have really multiple properties you might include for different cases, then it just gets messy. <laughs> it just gets messy very quickly. And that is where I feel Elixir as a language could benefit from a bit more like developer support, let's call it that, right? Where you, where you have a bit more support from the language itself to, to give you something to model these more complex cases. And, and this is actually born out of a, like a project I've been working on for a while now. So like a kind of side project, Adi. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing a side project, but I'm barely doing it. It's not even like it's more on the like idea ideation phase. But in there, basically, I wanted to model, I wanted to build a, da a database of um, games. So because I wanted to basically model, okay, which person has which game? And that includes where do they have that game? So do we have it on Steam? Do we have it on Epic? Do we have it on Xbox? Whatever, right? And that means you might have, um, like I have a list of kind of owner ownership context, but like each possible case is like one 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 case of of this ownership idea, right? It might be on Steam, and then it has different properties. It might be on Epic, then it has different properties. It might be on PlayStation, and it has different properties. But 
still is like, where do you own this game, right? Like, where did you get it from? And that was the, exactly the point. I was like, man, I could now sit down, I don't know, like write down a bunch of structs and at the fields and blah, 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 blah. And I've done that in the past. There was one project where we built like a HTTP kind of thing that had, could either do a get request or a post request. And then I actually modeled it out. Okay, it have like a get request struct and have a post request struct and it can be one of the both. But it gets very cumbersome very quickly because it feels super boilerplate. At that point, it actually felt like I was writing Java <laughs> because I had to write out so much code just to get to this point of, hey, this is a struct with these fields. And yes, I want to annotate them with a bit of types, but gets very, very bloated very quickly. And that is exactly the point where I feel Elixir as a language could, could, there could be more support coming from it because just writing these some types and something like Rust feels super convenient. And the, the same, like also for something like Haskell or Gleam or Elm or whatever, right? Like any language which has more stronger support for those, especially if they have like compile time support. I mean, has any of you ever dealt with Elm? And or like, I think also Rust does it, right? Like where you add a case to, yep. to like one of the tech unions with some types and the compiler is like, hey, yeah. you, forgot, you forgot to match it over there. That's just... <laughs> You know, yeah. and the first time you do it, you're like, damn, this is so annoying. I don't want to do this. And then after you do it and you realize the benefits that you're like, basically Elm was known as like the front end framework that would never crash because yeah, like of kind of this. Line, yeah. yeah. And actually, did you hear it? It didn't end up crashing one day. Yeah, but there, yeah, they, there was a crash. I, I thought because they, they left a debug line in there that makes the program crash. But in, in any case, like you wonder, like why is it, how come this thing has this guarantee? And then you're like, oh, it's because they forced you to do this thing where you have to handle every situation. And then once you have that, you're like, damn, this is really nice. First, it's like, damn, this is annoying. You know, it's like everybody fights the bar checker and rust, right? And then once you get beaten by it enough times and you start to realize it, you basically get Stockholm Syndrome, right? You're like, yes, I do want to handle everything. I do like this. But you actually do like it deep down because you know the benefits are much more than the, the what do you call it? The, the, I want to say the seance, but the, the rules? Or effort. The, Adi, the eff, effort? No, there's cost, another word like the cost. cost. Yeah, maybe. But there's another word I'm thinking about. It's like, ah, anyways, call it whatever gains. you want. <sighs> yeah, but, probably coming uh, later on, but yeah, I definitely get what you're saying, and it's like it's maybe my same experience with some of these more strict languages. And my personal opinion is, uh, personal theory is that it comes from a place when you are used to manage that inside of your head, right? Like when when you program and then, for example, okay, I need to do need to remember to update it over there if I add this another case. Right? All of this is before that managed by your brain, kinda, and then suddenly this. this piece of technology comes along and says like, yeah, hey, I'm going to take care of that for you, but you need to follow my rules. You're like, no, my rules have been working for me. Go away. <laughs> and that is this episode, the spirit of friction, right? But at some point you realize, hey, wait, this thing is taking care of it for me. That just means I no longer need to think about it. And like, if you get to that point, it just, it gets so nice because suddenly this, this part of your brain, which is always keeping track of it, it's just like, hey, I can relax now. Nice. Right. And then you just, you try, you embrace it. And, and, and you come to a point where you actually do enjoy the compiler yelling at you because you're like, yeah, okay, I would have missed that. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Compiler. And in theory, the allies could be doing the same, but it hasn't happened for me yet. <laughs> So Adi, what what is your experience with, with those kind of things? Because I mean, you said, you said earlier you've had a bit of Haskell, right? You can write them, but right, yeah. I mean, it was yeah. The, the first, I mean, exactly what Alan said. I mean, first time I did Haskell, it was annoying because like the effort to get something basic 
was huge. And, and I mean, like, it's like, I would say like the restriction, the compile time restrictions are like, I mean, if you compare the difference between Rust and Elixir, double that. And that's a difference between Haskell and Elixir. So it was, it was quite annoying. But I mean, once like, you know, again, Alan said, once you're used to that kind of way of thinking, it's almost like therapeutic to do it. There was a time when I would like do Haskell mornings just to, as, instead of meditation and just like do Haskell to like get momentum for the day. Uh, I have my, thoughts have evolved a little bit and that I generally like to use types and union types now when there is like a more complex problem that I'm trying to solve. And it, yeah, I mean, I mean, generally, you know, generally in simple ones, um, even if I am used to it, it takes a mindset for others as to like incorporate that and like use that it's 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 a lot of effort from others and like onboarding gets harder making changes making simple changes gets harder so uh generally my you know point where things start to get complex is like you know when we're doing like np complex problems that's when you know types especially help a lot like i i I think i've given this example a few times one of the actually the first np complex problem that i saw that was in production was like a very complex like a tax calculation for healthcare in us which you guys might know is terrible and that doing it in elixir we it took like months to write that code, right? And we had we added property-based tests to, you know, kind of like capture the correctness of the program, right? So we are like getting like running the test for five hours or something. We're getting like 95% correctness of Elixir. After I left the company, just for a month, I had a break and I wrote down Elixir. It took me, uh, no, sorry, wrote down Haskell. It took me three weeks and the correctness was 100%. Because every edge case, I, w- I could d- define a type in the function. So mm-hmm. at compile time, I could capture all of the edge cases and force the app to behave in a specific way. That's, I think that's like super powerful. That's, that's where I firsthand experience the, you know, advantage of having like a, you know, very robust, explicit type system. Uh, and it was faster to write too, right? Again, given that you're already used to that kind of thinking, but yeah, it's very similar to you guys' experience. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. There's also an amazing book from Scott Flushin, which is called Domain Modeling Made Functional. And in that book, he's using F-sharp, which is not necessarily my weapon of choice, right? I mean, I do really enjoy working with Elixir. But what he basically does, that it's just, I was mind blown when I read that. Is he didn't write a single line of like working code, but he basically throughout half of the book, he was just specifying types, just types, to model the domain in that case. And I mean, the classic domain-driven design example is with like, you have some kind of sales flow and you might have an invoice, but you have like an unpaid invoice. And then at some point you have a paid invoice, but, but everything is still an invoice. It's just different states of an invoice. And that he modeled with a union, with like a sum type, right? And then said, okay, depending on what kind of state that invoice is in, that there is different properties are potentially relevant. And that just, when I read that, I was like, <laughs> that makes so much sense. <laughs> yeah. And that is, that is like something, I feel like unions and sum types, that's just a tool in the tool belt. When you really grok them, you start to see them everywhere. It's kind of the same with like sets or hashes or like right. arrays, right? Like where there are specific problems where a set is super useful, not for every problem, but it's good to have it in your toolbox. And the union is exactly also that. Like it's a good tool for modeling specific types of problems. Yeah, you mentioned, I think you mentioned that book as a pick a couple times, if I'm not mistaken, because it, it, it's on my read list that was inspired by your picks so yeah i was just checking that but i think one of the things i really like about f sharp i haven't done it in years but they have something called railway oriented programming which is like you know making sure it's kind of like the okay error tuple but like expanded to like a user facing results that really goes so well with union types to make sure you know 
uh, everything is captured, but not only captured, but like handled. You know, it, it's, a, it's a perfect example of how, you know, you can build like deterministic system. I mean, F-sharp has a lot of other things that there's many reasons why it didn't like blow up. But I think this was a very good concept. I remember thinking it, it great ease of union types to make sure you write a error-free app from a user end user perspective. Hey there, this is Charles Maxwood. I'm excited because I wanted to let you know about this thing that I pulled together that I had just, I've been dying to have this for years and I never felt like I could. And then I just realized that there's no reason why I can't. So um, I'm putting together a book club and we're going to read development focused books, career books, you know, uh, technical books, whatever. The first book that we're going to do is going to be Clean Architecture by Uncle Bob Martin. If you're not familiar with Clean Code or some of the other stuff that Bob has done, check that out. I've also talked to him on the Clean Coders podcast, which is on Top End Devs. But uh, yeah, we're going to get on. He's going to show up to some of our meetings. And what I'm thinking is we'll probably have like five or six people uh, part of the conversation along with Bob and I at the same time. And we'll just, uh, so somebody can come on, they can ask their question and then we'll just ro- rotate people through. So we'll, we'll mute one person, unmute another person when it's their turn to come on and, and be part of the discussion. So we'll do that for like an hour, hour and a half. And then the other part of it that I'm putting together is just kind of a meet and greet gather area on gather town. And so after the, the meetup and the call, what we'll do is we'll all go over to Gather Town and you can just log in, walk up to a group and have a conversation. And that way we can all kind of get to know each other and and make friends and, and get to know people across the world. Uh, one thing that I'm finding is that, yeah, the meetups are starting to come back, but a lot of people don't have the opportunity to go to a meetup. And I really want to meet you guys and talk to you. So we're going to put all that together. It'll all be part of that book club. You can go to topendevs.com slash book club to be part of it. And I'm looking forward to seeing you there. The first book club meeting will be in December, the beginning of December. We're starting the first week of December. And um, you'll also be part of the conversation about which book we do next. I have one in mind, but I want to see where everybody's at. So there you go. So I think there is even, there's like a library in Elixir, which is kind of trying to get some of that goodness specifically from Haskell, right? In, into Elixir, there's, there's witchcraft, which I just, I always love the name. I've always loved the name of the thing because you do use witchcraft, which is just amazing. <laughs> but it has like this, uh, this child library, let's call it that. I'm not sure how to specifically refer to that, but LJ, which is for algebraic data types, which is also where some types and product types and the whole like this notion, this, this terminology comes from because it, it, is, it is actually at that point closely related to mathematics. And the thing is, like, while I really enjoy this being there and the community dabbling with that and people using it, it's like, it's a tough thing to swallow. Like, it's not just something you take one peek at and you're like, oh, yeah, sure, I get it. E- easy peasy, right? But it brings some of that, how do I say, like upfront investment complexity, mental up, right. me, like the, the, the kind of brain juice you need to invest before you really grok that this, what this thing does. This this kind of brings along with, with a word from Haskell. And like I, I definitely can relate to what you said earlier with like Adi with, with Haskell and the first time you are like, what, what the heck is happening? I also dabbled a few times with Haskell and I feel I'm at a point where I could probably write a halfway complex thing in Haskell now, but man, I, I would I would probably be completely helpless if I couldn't Google every five seconds. <laughs> you mean Google? Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> so yeah, that is. I, I really love that there is this project, and I really think it's a it's a cool thing also to to push the the community and more towards some of these very really 
stricter but powerful modeling ideas, but it's not something you can just bring in into every project and use right away because people will be confused. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, like given all of that has been said now and like all your experience with Rust, has have you ever been in a situation where like, you kind of deli- you kind of missed that modeling in Elixir or you kind of deliberately went for something similar? And how did you do that? I'm kind of the person that tries to write code in the way that that language wants you to write it, right? Like a Pythonic way, idiomatic Rust. I don't know what you call Elixir. If you're writing, is it just idiomatic Elixir? Is there any special phrase? No? Yeah, yeah idiomatic, I think, is the best word yeah. you can be using here. Yeah, so I, I try to go that way, right? So, I mean, you theory, maybe I want to say alchemic, alchemic elixir or something. But uh, no, I mean, you cannot like, I mean, I, I guess you can take a screwdriver and beat a nail into the wood like a hammer, but it would kind of defeat the purpose. Right. I think the only thing that I do do recently, I just started this recently. Of course, I've, I always do like my testing first and I kind of use my test to drive my APIs. And then I, of course, use the test then to make sure that those APIs work properly. When I say APIs, I'm talking about like when I write a function, I want to pass in what and I want to get what out of it. And then I do the guts of that function. I think the only other different thing I do now, and maybe it's because I have been working more with type languages like Dart and, and Rust, is actually writing the spec, the type spec above it. I think that's the, the only difference that I would do, that I do recently. And I start to think about, you know, what would that be? I never run a dialyzer. I did before, like, but I don't ever really run it right now. But it's good that type specs are there because you can output those in a documentation. Mm-hmm. So that's probably the most helpful. And I do force other people around me to put in uh, type specs just because I want people to know what should be going in and what should be coming out. Yeah. So so I guess that's kind of like maybe it's a long answer for your question. Is is it affecting your code? Yeah, maybe it is. Uh, I think that's kind of where the that the type specking kind of came in at because I don't use it for anything other than just knowing what am I getting and what am I getting out of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of the same at this point. We we talked about about it a bit in the our CICD episode, right? That like type specs and then like private code, I tend to add them to top level modules for documentation purposes, but I no longer integrate dialyzer at that point. But for library code, I still do because I don't want other people's code to break because I fucked up my type specs. But yeah, for documentation, I think they're amazing because they do definitely add value to like lots of generated documentation because you can easily access them there. They also tend to be available through like code completion, right? And that is just that is just something which which can be very helpful to work with. Adi is like wiggling his head. Why are you wiggling your head, Adi? I don't. I'm, I'm, I agree. I agree with most of what you guys are saying. I I think the type type spec there is still I think there's like a I think there is a tool missing in Elixir to make it useful right now. I feel like something like I mean getting a Getting a compile time warning sure is great, but I don't think Elixir is built for that. I think I would say something like, you know, if you have type spec, like a property based test based on type spec that generates data and expects the result to match that type spec might work, might, might be more successful in Elixir. But yeah, but other than that, for the most part, I agree with you guys. Yeah, there's also still the gradualizer project, right, going on, but that has more velocity in the Erlang community. I think there is some effort also to make it available through for Elixir. But for everybody who has never heard of that before, I mean, it, it did, we did mention it in the past episode a few times, but basically it takes the type specs as they are and interprets them in a more strict manner. Uh, so because stylizer is like very lenient when it comes to false positives, kind of. So it really doesn't want to give you false positives, which makes sense when you consider like type specs were added at a later point. 
to like existing code. And then you really don't want to have a tool which is screaming at you all the time for things which are not worth screaming about. But it does reduce the usefulness of type specs. And Gradualize is basically taking the same type specs, redefining a few things at the base level, but then says, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm more strict about this. And from what I've heard, it, it is quite usable in the Erlang ecosphere, not really yet for Elixir. So maybe that is an, an interesting thing to look out for. And I mean, from what I've heard, also the core team is now again looking into how Elixir could potentially be more statically typed, right? There is like literally research going on like i think uh, there's some funding right for, for, for some research in that, that that direction there's also i still saw a slide from a few years back and i don't know exactly it was in one elixir conf where there was a slide from joe uh, from jose where it said we started working on a, on a type system the next slide was we stopped working on a type system <laughs> which highlights the complexity of a problem i feel yeah, but also for even for WhatsApp, right? This is the second type system they tried to add to Erlang, right? Or am I remembering wrong? The second, I mean, there there is motion going on. The the, the taped Erlang thing is on ice now, but they yeah. So typed Erlang else. is the first one I would call, and then this would be the second one, which I don't understand exactly what the difference is, other than it's different. They mm-hmm. added they added uh, what's it called? What is the language? They add Scala to it, which is I'm still trying to figure yeah, that part yeah. out. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit odd, but yeah, but yeah, maybe to. To do to, to kind of go go full circle now. So given that we talked about all of this, right? Like with the lack of expressiveness with tuples sometimes, but with a boilerplate that's necessary to write like a bunch of structs, for example, I've, I've written a library to uh, tackle exactly this problem, and I call it X Union. It's not yet published at the moment of recording. I do hope it's published when we actually release this episode. But what it basically does is it generates from opinionated but concise DSL a bunch of structs and type specifications and helper functions to do just that. To have like, okay, I have different cases for this type. Best cases maybe, right? Like I said, this is a maybe example. So I have a some case and I have a none case. Some value or no value. And it generates, in this case, you could model it, write it out, sum with some value, pipe, none, and then it generates a sum struct, it generates a none struct, it generates some def delegate functions, so sum and none to create those very quickly. And it also, which I think is kind of, kind of the, the nicest little detail about it, it generates a guard called is maybe, which checks is one of those two cases. So it gives you some useful usefulness to also enforce, hey, this really should be one of these union type values. I don't care which one, but it should be one of those. And it has, like I said, it has been born out of, of, a, out of my own kind of itch because I'm, do, I'm, I'm working on this little project of mine where I do want to model those things. And I did look around and I found LG and I, I knew about it before. And I found some other projects which kind of did the same thing, but either they were not maintained on a really like in a super rough prototype stage and abandoned, or they were something like LG, which was just bringing in more than what I asked for. So here's this thing now, which takes the idea and it's really only focused on that. It's only focused on giving you like a short, opinionated, concise way to define a bunch of basically structs to model something which is a bit more complicated than just okay or error. But the most important thing is that you're using Git Moji to, <laughs> when you're committing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Before we hit, hit record, Eddie. I, I did take a look, took a look at the repository. I was like, oh man, Sasha, you also started using emojis in your commit messages. Oh, it's a bit of a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> so yeah. 
<laughs> but yeah, th that thing exists now. So I would say go check it out on, on GitHub. Uh, happy to give me some feedback on, on Twitter or whatever. But I would actually be interested like, to hear your two opinions on it, Alan and Addy, because I mean, you kind of have different perspectives on this topic, right? So is this something you'll be using? If not, why? Or if yes, why? Right? I would be interested in this to try it out to see how it works. But off the top of my head, I mean, I, the way I think about Elixir is it just doesn't work the same as languages that have this as a first class support, right? So I'm not too sure, you know, I mean, I can't lean on it, right? Like I would in Rust or other languages that do it, like Elm. But I mean, I think it, it definitely, like we talk about using type specs as, like they did in the domain modeling book, right? Where they modeled mm -hmm. everything. I mean, you could still do that with, with this, at least. Maybe you can't lean on it, but you can at least model stuff with it, which is definitely useful. I'm looking to Adi. Adi looks like he has some something brewing. Oh, uh, no, I'm, I'm trying to think where I would use this. I mean, I would agree with Alan quite a bit here. I think maybe, the again, the way Elixir, I, I write it over the way, I mean, I think it's supposed to be written does kind of diminish the need for this a little bit. But I think errors is a good example, Sasha, that you mentioned. I think uh, at least the pattern in which we do errors, especially in the web layer in Phoenix, adding some kind of uh, a sum type uh, for that would be useful. Yeah. Um, the way we get around it is like with a protocol and implementation right now with our error types and our, because we have 100% code coverage, our test breaks if an implementation isn't defined for that error. But yeah, I'm again trying to think where would be a good use for this in Elixir. Just for, for me, it was mostly this the scenario of, of actually wanting to model different cases of, of, of a thing, right? Like I'm coming back to that example earlier with, with games and like also having potentially different properties for that. And it just, I really was like, okay, I can't do tuples here. Like it's too, it's too, too complex to do this with tuples because I, I definitely have different properties with different names and I do want mm -hmm. some compile time enforcement of them, right? I want to, for example, say, okay, for the Steam, there are my different properties relevant and for Xbox or for PlayStation. And yeah, I could have a tuple with like Steam Atom, but then again, like nobody would stop me from having a typo which says Zeme. <laughs> and that was where I came from. Here, I want a bit more guarantees by the compiler. Yes, I can't go 100% there to say I want to make sure that I always catch every different clause. Right. But at least for like creation and for like documentation purposes, it's way more information rich. But I think uh, documentation is a great point, actually. I think documentation would be great, like API documentation or something. There was this project that I was doing last year uh, with a previous coworker of mine, Jeffrey Matthias. He wrote Testing Elixir. Uh, he came up with the idea to use our test suite, controller test, to generate API documentation because the tests were so well done. And it, it, he needed some metaprogramming, so he reached out to me and was just like coding. But I think the lack of determinism in all the different responses, you know, errors and all that made it significantly harder than it needed to be. And I think that's where the structure, I guess that's kind of what you, we're getting at, right, Sasha? Structure would help yeah. us determine that, yeah. yeah. And also, like I mean, like I said earlier, I I've, have I've written similar code in the past with like multiple structs. Um, in this case, it was just like kind of this request modeling for a get request or for a post request. But that module, I mean, it has also some inline documentation, some module documentation, right? But that module is over 200 lines long because it's just, 
I need to define the abstracts, I need to specify the fields, I need to specify the types for the fields in a different manner, I need to add the some functions to create them and maybe also enforce a little bit of, hey, this field ought to be that value, right? I need to have some some handling at the top level where like, okay, this is like these are different types, this is how you're meant to use it, right? And all of this is possible, but the information density of all these number of lines of code is relatively low. There's like a few critical places you might want to look at, but most of it is boilerplate. And that is exactly why I said, like, I could do the same, for example, in this like little pet project of mine, but nah, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to write all of this out. So it was a bit of a bottom born out of a procrastination kind of, hey, what if I write a library which generates that code for me? But the more I played with it, I, I kind of started with like, right, this is this, this first idea. So I played a little bit with it. Like, could I do this? Like, how could I do this? And I ended up with something I feel is just, if you have a specific use case, I have these different cases and I want to lay out those other possible scenarios, right? And those are the fields you have. And those are the types of the fields you have. But I don't want to deal with writing all of it, stock boilerplate stuff. Then it just scratches that itch really nicely. Maybe I'm just the only guy who will ever use it. But I even, I've, but the nice thing about what I've ended up with here is I feel it's very self-descriptive. So even if you never really looked at that library before, it makes sense. Like as soon as you saw like one union type, you look at it and like, yeah, okay, this makes sense. I get it. And I feel that, that there's a lot of value in that, uh, which like I said earlier, right? Like something like LJ also kind of makes sense, but it does more. You need, need to grok it a little bit more to figure out what exactly it does. Yeah, totally. I think that's definitely what you have going. I, I'm a lot more likely to give what you have a try than LJ. I mean, the whole, yeah. I think the whole algebra data types is just like too crazy right now. I mean, I, I really like, in general, a lot of the goodness of like computer science has also come from people doing crazy right. things, right? Right, and right. it has been like leaked more for and so forth into mainstream languages. And I think that's amazing. It's just not for everybody. Like I would right. never get the idea of, of using something like AG in like a bigger corporate kind of project, even though it might be useful, right? Because then yeah. I'm always be the guy who used that weird library nobody understands. Right, right. I mean, I mean, like I said, like I said earlier, I mean, at that point, I would just use a ty actual type language only for that yeah. subdomain yeah. of problem, right? I, I think, I think I do fall mostly in Alan's category, where you know, like I don't think Elixir, at least at this point, is supposed to be used in at least as extreme a way as like witchcraft and algae. It's just, uh, I mean, I looked at the readme and. It, I mean, knowing Haskell sort of made sense, still not completely. <laughs> you know, I still had to look at the code and examples more. And yours is like, I mean, I, I can see someone who doesn't even know Haskell or just barely knows, you know, union types or disjoint types, whatever. They can read through the readme and it will make sense to them. So that, I think that's definitely what you have going here for XUnion. So yeah, that being said, this thing is now out. Like I said, I, I definitely want to make sure to get it published before this episode releases. I'm probably also going to write some type of blog post. I'm not good with blog posts, but I'm, I'm better with, with talking, to be honest, to get a bit of awareness on this thing, because I would really love to get some feedback from people if they see the value and what they would like to use it for. And I'm definitely going to bug some people at work about it. Like, hey, hey, don't you want to use this library? It's amazing. <laughs> um, but, but I'm starting to see a theme in, in the libraries I'm writing. They're always like, this is one problem, and this is one focused solution for it, and it does nothing else. And that's the point of libraries, right? Like solve a very specific problem. That's how you, I mean, develop. I mean, if, if it solves a specific problem that no other library solves in that as good a way, then that's the point of library. I have a piece of feedback for you. Line 29 of uh, X unit definition type field is not tested. The only line in your 
library. That's fantastic. Uh, well, I'm not, not surprised that you bring that up, Ari. <laughs> it's probably on, on uh, yeah, I see on cover rolls, right? Yeah. <laughs> 89% code coverage, and this guy gives me shit. <laughs> Wait, it's 98. 98, yeah. I said, I said, yeah. yeah, sorry, 98, 98% code coverage. And Ari's giving me shit for it. <laughs> okay. So, any any last words, people, you would like to talk about anything you think it's still worth covering? I want to know how come your test coverage went down. You were at 100% and they went down to 98.28%. What happened? I don't know. That's probably my last commit. Okay, it's changed yeah. some things. So, I'm going to have to double check on that. I missed a little bit. Well, it used to be 100%. Yeah. We'll see. I mean, it's still yeah, an active. I mean, the, as of right now, the README is like half finished. So, and I still dabbled with it yesterday. So, <laughs> yeah. There's still some little things I'd like to tackle here. For example, at the moment, you can't really do protocol de deriving or like decorating the generated structs. I'm, I have an idea of how, but how you could do that. But I thought, hey, this already, at least for me, it brings value. So, why not push it out? Why not make it available to everybody? And yeah. Get some feedback early. I think that's not also not a bad idea. But I was like, I had really hard time. Fun fact: um, finding a good example for adding types to the union definition. I'm really happy with what I ended up with <laughs> because I basically in the documentation I have an example of like defining a color type, which can be hex, it can be RGB, it can be RGBR, ASL, ASLR. But I when I first like, oh, what's a good example which isn't just I don't know pulled out of my ass, right? Because in my experience. Like code like this or documentation like this tends to have very contrived examples. I mean, the example before that with circle, square, and rectangle is kind of contrived again, but I was really I happy. I think error tuple. Error tuple, yeah. Error yeah, tuple. that's like an actual problem that I can, I mean, that, that's the actual problem where I see the best fit for this. That happens often enough. And yeah, I mean, there's so many, every every big Phoenix project I've worked in, there have been errors that haven't, haven't been well handled at the web layer. Not not only, you know, something that this would be a yeah, very yeah. use case for that. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of I'm curious to see where, where the journey will be going. I'm definitely going to keep working on this because it's small enough to make some some changes here and there. It it, it fits my my personal schedule, which is probably yeah. also why I do these smaller libraries. They are something I can reasonably finish in a weekend or two. Yeah, just I can make sure you don't thing. do 100 percent test coverage just to bug Adi. Sorry, just want to say yeah, I'm going to do 99.5. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think one place I can actually one thing I can see this again being coupled really well with is the action non that's what it's called the fallback controller, right? I think the handling of errors and the fallback controller it instead of you don't have to you don't have to do the protocol implementation step at that point. So yeah, sorry, I'm just like thinking out loud where I can use it. I, mean, I, I want to support this and I want to use it. I mean like yeah you could for example the fallback say hey kind of one definition of the fallback handle where it says with regard, hey, is it one of those cases, right? And then yeah, you could exactly. pass that to a different piece of code. So yeah, like I said, I'm 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 pretty happy with what I ended up here. Also with like the convenience it gives you, like with, with regard, that's not something I've never wrote for the other stuff before because it was just too fiddly. Right. Uh, but you get all of this for free. So as soon as you you put on the definition and it generates all of this code for you. So I'm pretty pretty happy with what I ended up with. I think another cool thing again, I'm, I might just be like thinking again, thinking out loud and like completely off of where you want to go and it might be like what like somewhat turning the sum types into a type like a kind of a product type it's like being able to match on the unions as a whole right so like i have like a union struct which can match any of the types in a given union again that kind of does a pattern kind of takes care of pattern matching as well. That's kind of the way the guard is coming in. Oh, that's how you implemented guard. Gotcha. Yeah. If you, if you get a value, you can say, is it one of the 
cases. It basically checks. Oh, right, right, right. Because you define the mod. Right. Got it. Yep. Makes sense. Yeah. Because then pattern matching will work too. Very cool. Yeah. That's kind of the whole idea. Okay. Then I would say that's cut it short. I mean, the short episode has never hurt anybody, right? I definitely, I'm, I'm on the side for some podcasts where I do enjoy a short episode occasionally. So let's go to picks. Have you ever wished that you had a group of people that were just as passionate about writing code as you are? I know I did. I did that for most of my career. I'd go to the meetups. I'd try and create other opportunities. And it was just really hard, right? The meetups, I got some of that, but they were only like once or twice a month. And it was just really hard to find that group of people that I connected with and, and really wanted to, you know, talk about code a lot, right? I mean, I love writing code. I think it's the best. And so I've decided to create this community and create it a, a worldwide community that we can all jump in and do it. So we're going to have two workshops every week. One of those or two of those every month are going to be Q&A calls, right, where you can get on, you can ask me or me and another expert questions. Uh, the rest of them are going to be focused on different aspects of career or programming or things like that, right? So it'll go anywhere from like deployments and containers all the way up to managing your 401k and negotiating your benefits package. We'll, we'll cover all of it. Okay. And then we're also going to have meetups every month for your particular technology area. So we have shows about JavaScript, React, Angular, Vue, and so on. We're going to have meetups for all of those things. I'm going to revive the freelancer show. We'll have one about that, right? So you can get started freelancing or continue freelancing if that's where you're at. And I'm working on finding authors who can actually do weekly video tutorials on something for 10 minutes that's related, to, again, to those technology areas so that you can stay current and keep growing. So if you're interested, go to topendevs.com slash sign up and you can get in right now for $39. When we're done, that price is going to go up to $75. And the $39 price gets you access to two calls per week. The The full price at $150, which is going to be $75 over the next few weeks, that price is going to get you access to all of the calls and all of the tutorials and everything else that we put out from Top End Devs along with member pricing for our remote conferences that are coming up next year. So go check it out, topendevs.com slash sign up. And I'm just going to go ahead because I already said what I will pick. <laughs> just to spite out of you a bit. I'm going to pick Gitmoji. And Gitmoji is, is a bunch of, it's a convention and there's a website for it. You can visit it. And it basically specifies, hey, for this type of change, you can prefix your commit message with this emoji. And we actually had a guest a while ago who also picked it. And I've, since then, I've fallen in love with it. <laughs> and I've also introduced it to at work and our team in the, in the backend squad, where we started to, to use it collectively. And it's for scanning commit messages, it's just the best. To be honest, like, I mean, Adi, you said earlier, you could also use keywords. I did kind of do that in the past, but like, I don't know, like my, my brain with like emoji, my, my, emo my brain passes emojis faster than a keyword. <laughs> so to be able to see, okay, yeah, this is just a bunch of refactoring, refactoring, refactoring. Ah, okay, this is some feature work, blah, blah, blah. And that's really, as soon as you kind of get, get, the, get the hang of it, like what the different emojis mean, it's, it's really nice to scan, for example, a pull request for like the kind of work that happened there. So it's not for everybody. I totally get it. I, I definitely do enjoy it. And um, just to, I think I've repicked picked it already twice, but since we all mentioned it, I'm just going to repick uh, Scott Blushen's domain modeling made functional book because I do think it's, really worth a read like it's captures even if you're not super into domain driven design it's still it's crazy to see how much work can be done up front with type definitions without even writing a single line of 
executable code. So even even for that, it's it's already worth a, worth a read. Okay, Adi, what are your picks for this week? I don't think I have any. Oh well, yeah, well it's a little too late, and probably this episode will be published after it. But Spawnfest's happening this weekend, so it's it's not a pick, but maybe go check the website and all the repos that come out of it. <laughs> it's like a retro pick. Are you going to participate? I want to, but I. I'm just short of time. I don't think I'll be able to spare 48 hours, unfortunately. I want to, and I wanted to use Gleam, but... Ah, okay. Uh, I would have excited to, to see what came out of that. But... Yeah, I had an idea about... It was like a vote. You know, when you when you vote, the effectiveness of your vote based on what party you're voting for, what are your issues, and what state you're in, because we have the delegate system. So it was... Yeah, anyway. Okay. Alan, what are your picks? A Rust book. Pick up Rust book. Come on. Uh, yeah, I just haven't had time looking to Rust recently, but I want to. I, I need to for something. But I want to say I, I picked up this thing called uh, Orbit Key. Have you guys heard this thing before? So uh, it's a company called Orbit Key. They start off making this thing called a key organizer. So one of the most annoying things for me is when you got your keys in your pocket and it scratches up all your stuff. I don't know about you guys, but you guys look like nobody, you put your keys in one pocket and leave it alone, right? All right. So I put my keys in the pocket and I put something else in there and it just scratches the hell out of everything. And so I heard about this thing called the Orbit Key. I'm super happy with it. Like I put like about seven keys on there. They kind of come out like this. It's got like a little sheath on it. It's kind of like a little cool thing I, I use now. Uh, of course, I always have a bottle opener just in case, you know, you got to have a beer once in a while. Yeah, you know, what I'm talking about Sasha. Yeah. So is that your ring is a bottle opener? Yes, awesome. I have a bottle opener ring. <laughs> <laughs> so then you're more it's, crazy it, than me. <laughs> it's a great, but it's a great icebreaker on any party. Seriously, like if people come, yeah. like, yeah, somebody, does somebody have a bottle opener? And you're like, yes, pop, and the bottle is open, right? And they're like, oh, how did you do that? Did you do it with your hand? <laughs> yeah, that's what you, you shouldn't tell them that you have a bottle opener. Just do it with your hand and see, you know. <laughs> Anyways, this thing has been awesome. It's been cool to put in my pocket and not to worry about anything getting scratched up. So it's kind of nice. So uh, yeah, that's my pick for this week. And yeah, nice. I tend to just keep my keys in one pocket and put a bag of good god i don't know the english word for that so like when you blow your nose what is the word for that oh tissue tissue thank you tissue yeah. i think it's a bag of something else but <laughs> i was like, a little bit confused I, I put a package of tissues uh, alongside yeah. my, my, my pocket is full and i mean my keys i'm not gonna scratch the pack of tissues right like who but, the fuck cares? So, yeah, yeah but that's why you do it just because of that reason right because otherwise yeah, your keys scratch that's why i picked this thing up it's been uh it's been interesting my keys scratch my car keys because they're in the same keychain. So, yeah, I, I feel you, Alan. Yeah, so that's why it's my what, pick. What, oh, Addy, do we want to do like a little bonus round of video game picks? I, I have a video game pick. Yeah, go for it. I'll think of one. Because I recently actually got a PS5. I got one, yeah. <laughs> so I've been playing. Finally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still hard to get in Europe. It's still hard to get in Europe. And I've been playing Returnal on it. And I'm I'm really enjoying it. Like I, I get some criticism out there which says that the runs in Returnal are too long. Like you, it feels really harsh when you like lose a run because they can easily be two hours. But man, the gameplay is nice. I'm really enjoying the gameplay, <laughs> and I'm also really enjoying the fucking controller. Like the controller is just I, I wouldn't have didn't I would have didn't expect it before. But my gosh, is this a nice controller? So um, yeah, definitely, definitely worth the investment. I've been, I've been really happy with the purchase, purchase, and I'm really enjoying Returnal so far. So that's my my bonus pick. Yeah, plus one for Returnal. I played it when PSI came out, and I yeah was hooked. It's it's such a good game. I'm actually well, not anymore, but last month I started replaying Sekiro. hadn't got didn't get a chance to get back to it, but 
it's it's just such an amazing game and it looks amazing on ps5 if someone has a ps5 it looks amazing on the new gen consoles and yeah if you're going for punishment but not as much punishment as dark souls 3 but like or returnal for that matter but you want to still have some fun sakira is good nice okay then thanks for tuning in folks and i hope you learned something today and i hope my rambling at the beginning wasn't too confusing and see you next time when we have another episode of the Vixie Mix. And Adi, you now go take a nap. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.